There are many ways to travel around the world, but what is so specifically glorious about the road trip? The romance of hitting the wide open road has sparked the imaginations of writers and directors since the dawn of the highway. The journeys might take longer than in a plane or a train, but in your car, restrictions are lifted. You can take wrong turns that turn out to be the right ones, meet weird and wonderful folk, and get up close and personal with your surroundings. You might have a destination in mind, or maybe you just want to see where the ride takes you. Maybe an unexpected twist in the road or the story will lead you to places you've never otherwise explored. You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. In each episode, we'll be exploring different paths around the world across four different continents. This week, it's where the beret is born. We're in Paris and we're taking things a little differently. During this series, we've been privy to some of the world's most jaw-dropping scenery, tropical weather and meandering roads traversing countryside. Today, we're going on an urban exploration of France's capital with a focus on fashion, art and design and to see what you can find out about a place in its lesser-known suburbs. Plus, we'll speak to the men who designed our car, the Audi e-tron, to find out how you design a vehicle for a road trip. To get us in the mood, we're going to talk about the most quintessentially French thing we could think of, the beret. L'Oléa is one of the most famous beret brands in the world. For nearly two centuries, the company have been making the French fashion staple in its Pyrenees factory in the small town of Oloron Saint-Marie, once a hub of the beret industry. It's now the last remaining factory of its kind that still hand makes all of its hats. We meet the company's CEO, Rosabelle Fauzy, to find out how the company keeps this French tradition alive in the fashion world today. L'Oléa is the, the last historic fabric of beret in France. Uh, L'Oléa is a really, really old company, 175 years. Pierre L'Oléa, who was the founder, had at the time more or less 1,000 employees working for berets. At this time, they had a lot, a lot of beret fabrics in France. It's not the time, unfortunately, now. But Pierre L'Oléa and all the workers have given to us with the time all the savoir-faire in order to make that beautiful hat, the beret. The beret is arguably the most famous icon of France. Perhaps it's in competition with the Eiffel Tower, but <laughs> they can fight that one out. How did the beret become such an icon of this country? It's really weird. We do not know exactly why the beret is such a symbol of France. We had like a lot of Parisians wearing the beret during the last century. And it's certainly why the, the, for the people from other countries, French all the time have a beret. But it's also because iconic French person have wear the berets like Brigitte Bardot, like all the, this star movie, who, and the beret is, for us, iconic as the symbol of France and French people. Because it's such an iconic piece of clothing, do you even have to update it much? People probably come here wanting quite a classic hat. Yes, it's, people are looking for the classic berets, but after when you have one, you want more. So you begin often by a classic beret and after that you have a lot more. We are trying really hard in order to be 
to, to stay with the, the same savoir-faire and the same quality of barrettes. So that's how our goal, that's our mission in that company. So it is really, really important for us that when people come here, they're going to find the same barrettes that their father or their grandfather buy in France like 70 years ago. And it's, it's our mission. And could you tell us a bit about the town that your factory is in, Oloron Saint-Marie? In the Pyrenees, isn't it? Yes, Laurent Saint Marie is in the Pyrenees. It's a really, really nice town. It's it's quite small, but you have the Gave, which is the river, and you have the the Pyrenees. So it's it's where the 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 beret is born. It's in the middle of the Pyrenees, in the middle of the mountain. It's sometimes cold, sometimes really hot, and it's a tough condition. But it's so beautiful, so natural, and it's looked like our brand. It must be nice to get to spend so much time down in the Pyrenees for your job. Yes, everything is nice when you go to the Pyrenees. That's super nice when you go to Paris. I love Paris also, though, so a perfect life. <laughs> well, while we're talking about craft, let's discuss the car. At the Paris Motor Show this year, the Audi e-tron was revealed to plenty of new customers and we met the car's designers to find out what sort of adventures they envisage their car to have. My name is Matthijs van Tuyl. Uh, I work in Audi Ingolstadt. I'm part of the Audi design team and um, working on the interiors of our Audi range. And for the last five years, we've been working on uh, the Audi e-tron interior. The e-tron has very four distinctive values uh, where we created the car around it. First of all, we have performance, but also the car is about intelligence, lightness, the sensation of lightness, and a ceremony, or as we used to say, the orchestration of, of everything together. Because what, what we really want to do is to give our customers not only a form and a design, but also really design a space where they can have a unique experience and we speak to all the senses. The interior architecture of the car is such a school of design now in its own right. I'm sure you have a favorite chair, a favorite position in your studio at Audi or in your, in your home um, where, you, where you have your best thoughts and your most kind of creative moments. Can you tell us about that? Can you tell us the perfect desk to sit at or maybe the perfect chair that you, you sit in to do this? Because a part of that might have seeped into your creative vision for this car. Well, personally, I like the, uh, the Eames chair from Vitra. Um, that's a really nice chair, and it also has this idea of lightness and the very uh, nice logic of material uh, creating uh, aesthetics. But most of it, it's really important uh, to know that this car is really a team effort. So every one of the team brings in something of their own culture. We have a very international team and uh, it's about the people that created this car, you know, bringing them together, bringing the team together, all the experts for the details to the, the main architecture. That's where design is about, it's about the team. So my name is Juan Carlos Huerta, I'm exterior designer and in the last four years I've been working in the exterior design of the Audi e-tron. What gives you inspiration for that? Are you looking at, are you walking around galleries? Are you finding inspiration in the, in the, in the light on the play of buildings? Where, where do you spot these things and notice them? What's your mood board, I like, wonder at work? There, there is definitely a lot and, and by always using the word sculpture 
that it really shows a little bit from where these experiences is coming. Of course, art is, is a big inspiration for designers and especially this sculpture, this, this, the way that people work with different materials. It could be clay, it could be stone, it could be wood. And the way they develop the shapes in design, we always talk about the, the UFO feeling of the car that, uh, as you said, when it's standing in the street, still looks attractive and interesting. It still have this modern approach. And somehow the UFO, and if we think about, about the cartoons in, 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 the, in the 90s, 80s, of course, they always have this iconic shape. Almost as I was describing, they have this horizontal line somehow, and then everything what is on top of it is facing up. Everything what is below is facing down. And it has this, this really nice shaped kind of uh, futuristic approach on it. And this, of course, is, is a funny way to, to say in the presentation, but somehow true that we always had it in mind, a little bit to create this horizontal line that splits the volume in two like a, like a UFO. We're interested in a bit of the sort of romantic idea of where you can take this car, the possibilities, the, the road trips perhaps, um, some of the things that we're keen to explore, Matthias. What's a trip perhaps that's in your mind um, when you think of the, the, the possibility of this car? Where would you most like to take it? <laughs> well, we created the car uh, for the experience, for our customers. Uh, personally, I would like to the only thing I want to do right now is after tonight to, to take the car somewhere with, uh, with my family, with a little kid in the rear. Uh, it would be perfect for California drive into sunset and just enjoy the beach somewhere, you know. We jump into our car and head to the 11th arrondissement where we find an urban adventurer called Nicolas Le Goff. Le Goff is the author of L'Autre Paris, an alternative guide to the outer suburbs of Paris that aims to connect the centre with its banlieue. Though the 11th isn't exactly on the edge of the city, there are plenty of pockets in this neighbourhood that the tourists don't tend to reach, as Nicolas explains to Monocle's Holly Fisher. My aim in writing these two books, Another Paris, was to basically build a bridge between Paris and the suburbs. So my roots, my itineraries, they start in Paris, at a point where uh, regular tourists uh, usually stop their the discoveries, and I start my itineraries and then cross the city up to the other side of the boulevard peripheric, the, um, the motorway, the, the, the ring around Paris. So that was my aim. And then the other theme was to show an innovative and cultural Paris, perhaps more lively than the one which is shown in the postcard. So I just wanted to show you these two small alleys. And your job as an urban explorer, when did you get into that? When did you start exploring the, the niche bits of Paris? So that's my job uh, since a very recent time, but I was lucky for 10 years to travel a lot in foreign cities for my job. I was in in charge of the promotion of the French cultural industries abroad. So I discovered a lot of different cities and I had where I had to organize events. So I really got to, you know, to sneak around in, in foreign cities and to discover how they worked, which one were good at, you know, marketing that territory or, um, or at, you know, uh, and light, uh, putting the light on different kind of neighborhoods. So I, I really started to interest myself in, in, in how you, you did soft power around your territory or your city. And what did you learn about Paris by visiting all these other places? I learned that other cities were smarter in terms of um, talking about themselves and that Paris usually was 
too many times, you know, reduced to the postcard to the city of lights, full of monuments to, you know, the Haussmannian buildings, the Macaron, La Durée, these kind of things. But Paris is not that only. It's also a lot of different kind of hoods where people might be very excited to, to run around, to go out, to discover smaller museums, other initiatives, cool cafes. Yeah, and I think people are becoming much more interested in exploring those parts of cities now, aren't they? Especially because there are more and more repeaters, people who don't come just once to cities, to Paris, for example. People tend to come back and they want to experiment or experience other, other things, other places. Uh, so I wanted to write about these uh, alternative places, or not just only alternative, but um, other pr propositions that the city has to, uh, can make to people who come to visit. Now, you just brought us into this courtyard where the theatre is. Tell us a bit about where we are. So we are in, um, sorry, we pushed the door to get in. It's paved courtyard with some greenery falling from the balconies. And it's, you know, it, it's a very old building in wood, uh, which is painted in purple or, I don't know, red. And uh, there are a lot of artistic studios at all the levels. It looks like a very, very old wooden motel or something like that and uh, it's really pleasant I think and people usually tend to go uh, past it you know on the street without even noticing there's a very pleasant place here. So this is the sort of place that you would put in your book, yeah, Lord exactly, Perry. Yeah. Because I'm really I'm coming from the cultural uh, field and the innovation field so I really wanted to put a stress on innovation in the city or on cultural places or hidden cultural places in my book so that's one of the um, of the leads of my of my itinerary is the ones I, I write about. Okay, well should we carry on and see what yeah. we can find next? I've just seen a man like a past eating a baguette, which is probably one of the most French things I've seen since I got here. <laughs> just next door you've got an old restaurant, you know, with a lot of uh, it's grapes, vines, and you know, uh, every September the, the neighborhood is close to traffic and uh, they organize the vendange, uh, they organize the, the harvest and the children of the neighborhood, you know, they, they go barefoot and they, they stomp on the, on the grapes and uh, there's like a, like a village uh, party here in the neighborhood. So if you were a tourist and just living here or crossing the street these days, that would be very pleasant because it's not at all like what you would expect in Paris, for example. No, it's a little vineyard inside exactly. the city. Yeah, exactly. And we could just take one of these tiny and narrow streets. I organize uh, urban hikes. I take people of uh, groups of foreigners, foreign decision makers, for example, who want to identify uh, new trends in urban planning or urban scenography. Mm -hmm. So I take them in urban hikes and we start in Paris and we discover places and meet the local actors or stakeholders and we, we walk towards the suburbs and end on the other side of the peripheric boulevard. I mean the, the big motorway which circles Paris. And when you take them on these walks, what things are they most surprised by? By the fact that Paris is more lively that, than what they had thought before coming and that where we go to doesn't look like what they regularly know about Paris or about what they've seen in the city centre. Because my, my aim is to make them discover a, a new side of the capital city. And that's what interests me in other metropolises, is to go a bit further than where the regular guides take me to. 
One of the reasons we chose Paris as a place to explore art and architecture is because it's the prototype modern city. In the 19th century, Napoleon ordered for a complete revamp of the place, which is how it became the huge 12-pronged metropolis that it is today. Parks, sewage systems and railways were created, making Paris a purpose-built city rather than a merging of small towns. So let's meet someone who's currently rebuilding a rather tall slice of the city. Franklin Azie is a French architect who runs a firm under his own name. He's worked on both interior and exterior projects all over the world for art schools, fashion boutiques and various landmarks. But right now, he, along with a team of other architects, have been tasked with redesigning part of Paris's skyline, the Montparnasse Tower. We meet him in his smart offices, half of which are currently transformed into an art show in the second arrondissement. I think in France, maybe we did I would say 45 projects in different cities. And um, there is a, a big contradiction between the north and the south of France, for example, which are different people. They have lots of things in common, but they're very different. And uh, every time we go into a city, first we have to understand it, to understand what's the population living in it, what's the spirit of the civilization. And we adapt the project and we make them uh, linked to um, where what they belong. The big project that you've got coming up is the, the tower, the Montparnasse Tower. And that's, you know, that's a huge building in Paris. It's part of the city's skyline. What do you have to take into consideration when you're designing something that is so enormous within mm. a city? Mm. Well, that's exactly the difference between art and architecture, because art you can you have the choice to see a piece of art you have to go into a gallery or a museum or um, an exhibition space architecture is all the time visible so it's a museum in the street that's maybe why um, sometimes architects are very critical uh, because if a building is not supposed to be as well as it should be uh, there's lots of critics around architecture, much more than into art, because there is a choice to go there into an exhibition space. So there is a responsibility for architects. I'm not talking about responsibility or aesthetism. I don't care about aesthetism in architecture. But for me, there is good and bad buildings. That's for sure. I'm definitely confident that there is good and bad buildings. But it's not always aesthetical. I know that in this project, there's quite a sustainable element to it. Sustainability, an important practice for you in your firm. Sustainable buildings is something I'm living with every day. And uh, I mean, it's not something new. I mean, it's been 10 years we're working on this. Uh, But it's a complicated subject because um, I really believe that sustainable buildings come from a good sense of conception of a building. It's not systems, it's not uh, electricity, it's not uh, services that will make your building um, uh, sustainable. And we've been working a lot on passive way to make building sustainable. That's extremely important. For example, that the work that we did on the Montparnasse Tower with my collective uh, partners, it was a a building which was uh, spending a lot of energy building from the 70s, uh, absolutely absurd in terms of uh, energy um, uh, politic. And we make it absolutely perfect now because uh, we are divided by 10, the consumption of the building. That's my job. I'm an architect. I'm more um, a technician 
And uh, I'm not afraid to say this. I mean, all the architects, they think they're brilliant artists, but I, I'm not confident with the term artist for architecture. And I think that the work that we're doing with my partners is to make this building loved again. It's not a new dress that we want to, to design. The way to make it love again is to make it a destination place. And to make it a destination place, we decided to put inside the tower an hotel, lots of restaurants, a disco, kindergarten. And that's a way to do like a, a real vertical city because it used to be only offices inside, boring offices. And we are changing the programs inside. And that's the way to make it loved again. And when you're traveling, not as an architect, but just for a trip or a holiday or something, how do you travel around a city? Do you have like certain buildings that you want to go and see? Do you not want to look at any buildings at all because you need a break? Or is there like a certain way that you like to navigate a new place? Well, I think there's different kind of people when they're traveling. Some, some people wants to prepare a travel and some people want to live the travel they're, they're in. And I'm more into the second solution. So I've never prepared any trip, uh, never in my life, uh, because I think it's much more important to discover things. If you have a very, very planned trip, when you know that you, can, you have to see this building, then after you have to see these other ones, you can really miss what will be very sensible for you. So most of the time, I remember the first time I went in Tokyo, my assistant at this time made me maybe 20 items to go and see. And, uh, and I, I put this paper in the bin because I started the list and I said, come on, I'm not here to, to go from a building to another one. And I, I, I scratched the list and I decided to really walk into the street. And when you walk into the street, uh, your eyes are going up, down, left, right. And it's a very different way to discover a city when behind there is not the, the culture in the traditional uh, terms. It's more a journalistic travel I'm expecting than an architectural one. The view from the Montparnasse Tower is surely one of the most unrivaled in Paris. But that doesn't mean that the view from your studio window can't provide inspiration too. We meet Swiss artist Caroline Dernevaux right on the edge of town in her airy studio in La Villette on the northeast of the city's perimeter. She tells us how moving from the centre to the suburbs has changed her perspective of her work. Paris is inspiring me more with the architecture, I think, and... Yes, when you walk, there, there is always something to see, like a detail, a door, and people too. And tell us a bit about the neighbourhood that your studio and that you live in here. It's a very, very strange neighbourhood. I really love it. Actually, I'm here from June, so, and I discovered this area, and I find it's like a village. Before, I was in Pigalle, and... In Pigalle, people are very young, like more rich, more into a show-off. And here, it's really like they are very old people. There are lots of children. There is a, a big Jewish community too. And actually, I'm very impressed because they, we all live together here. And it's okay like this. And compared to other Paris areas, there is... There are, there are more like clans and here like it's uh, lots of people living together and it's okay and there is the park the, the huge park and so 
it's it's quite calm calm and yeah like a village and has so have you found that your paintings have changed since you've moved here have you had different ideas spilling out onto the page yeah a lot yeah i i can see it's it's not choice to change but it happens because of the light because it's very clear here and because of the neighborhood because i'm so close to the park i can see it from the window and there is la geode this huge bowl and the circus it's my the view is very playful and i find since i'm here the painting are more deep but light in color and it changed yeah i can i can feel it That brings us to the end of our jaunt around Paris. Though this journey didn't give us the sweeping landscapes of some of our others, using the car to get around the city took us to the edge of town, to the neighbourhoods the tourists are yet to discover. Urban landscapes can be just as beautiful as natural ones, and in a city that's so famous for its art and architecture, it's a pleasure to meet the people behind it and find out what it is about Paris that makes them tick. And don't forget, this is a trip that you will soon be able to make in the all-electric Audi e-tron. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi. The series producer is Holly Fisher and executive producer is Tom Edwards. This episode was produced and edited by Holly Fisher and recorded by Kieran Banerjee. I've been Robert Bounds and thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you.